Well, please turn your Bibles to First Timothy chapter 2. First Timothy chapter 2. We continue in our study of the uh, first letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. And we, we sort of turn a page here in, in the book as Paul came out from the beginning uh, charging Timothy to address uh, some men in the church that were teaching teaching that was contrary to sound doctrine. And he sort of identified some of the characteristics of their teaching. And then Paul went on to express what the real gospel is and what the real gospel does, right? That it saves even the chief of sinners, as Paul said. And we get in now to a a, a practical section, maybe even the heart of, of, of the letter, as we'll see how he how he begins. Um, but this section, as we've seen, this book is largely about the purity of doctrine in the church and purity of practice. And so we're getting in now to a section about the life and ministry of the local church. There's a verse that I think helps us understand this, and it's in chapter 3, in verse 14. And he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things... Uh, to you, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so Paul lets Timothy know that I've written you these things so that you would know how to conduct yourselves, so that you would know how the church is to function if I tarry, if I'm unable to to, uh, make it to you in the time that I'd like to make it. And so this section is, is, is speaking primarily of the corporate gathered church. Uh, a few reasons why I would say that. One is because when he calls men to pray, they are to pray without quarreling or anger. And it would be odd for a man to have anger and quarrel in his prayer closet by himself, but it's gathered prayer. Um, we will see next week that women are not to teach or exercise authority over men. And so there's an implication that we're talking about mixed company here. It's a teaching environment, and uh, women are to submit themselves to the authority. Um, and then the following chapters, we'll see in a few weeks, chapter 3 discusses the qualifications of those that hold office in the church. And so all of these things uh, are related to the, the public ministry of the local church. And I said this in the beginning of the series, I want to keep encouraging you to be reading this book as we go, uh, and insert it as you, as you do in your normal Bible reading. And if you have questions, things that you'd like to, to address or hear addressed, um, you can email me, talk to me, what have you, and we can uh, deal with that. And so we'll begin today in chapter 2, verse 1, First uh, Timothy, and this is God's infallible word. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of, I lost my place, God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, 
which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. May God bless today the reading and preaching of His Word. Let's pray. Father, we do come now in Your presence before You uh, to the preaching of Your Word. Uh, And God, I, I recognize that this is a fool's errand apart from the power and presence of Your Spirit at work here today. And so we ask for an abundance of the working of Your Spirit, God, through the preacher, but also through all of our souls in our ears and hearts and minds that we, that we would hear, that we uh, would receive Your Word with joy and gladness in, in whatever way You deliver it to us. Whatever we need to hear today, God, would we hear uh, that Word and would You work in us that which is pleasing in Your sight. I pray that You might be, ev- be even uh, pleased to save today, to save souls through the Gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It seems to me, and maybe this is just my observation, but it seems to me that prayer is an oft-neglected practice uh, for Christians. It's that thing that we must do if we want to see any fruit, any, any spiritual vitality, any, any production, if you will, from our ministry, any change in our lives, and any change in those around us that we desire to minister to. But with that in mind, it seems like it's the one thing that we so often fail to do. The thing that we sort of put on the back burner and give little attention to. I think maybe one reason for that is because usually we don't see immediate visible results in prayer. You know, when we want to minister, we go out and we do something and we're active and we, we engage. But prayer is, it feels at least, it feels like a, a passive act. We speak and we hope that God responds favorably to our prayers. And as Paul begins this section on the ministry of the church, I think it's not incidental that he begins with prayer. He begins with the ministry of prayer. And so I've called this message today a call to prayer, a call to prayer. And as we dive back into the text, as we begin uh, in verse 1, we see firstly that it is a call for all types of prayer, a call for all types of prayer. Look at what he says again. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made. I don't know that this is meant to be an exhaustive list of all types of prayers, but the implication is obvious. God's people ought to be a people of prayer. God's people ought to be a people of prayer. I might go so far to say that prayer is central to what it means to be a a Christian, to live out our faith. Prayer is communion with our Lord. It is how we commune with God, how we speak to Him. Thomas Watson said that prayer is the soul's breathing itself into the bosom of its heavenly Father. William Grinnell says it like this, that prayer is nothing more than the promises of God reversed, or God's Word formed into an argument. 
We receive God's promises in His words and we speak them back to Him in prayer, in faith. John Bunyan says that you can do more than pray after you have prayed. But you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. And as I said, prayer, it seems, is often neglected in the prayer closet. When you ask someone, how's your prayer life? Usually you'll probably hear, I wish it was, I wish it was more. Right? I wish I prayed more. And while prayer is neglected in the closet, for the individual, it seems that it's also often neglected in the gathered church. When God's people gather, it seems that little time is commonly given to seek God in prayer. I was given in a, in a, in a class one time uh, a, a model of a class, and I'm not looking to poke fun here, um, but it was, a, it was an order of service broken down from a church that was, that was faithful and, and, and vibrant, and they broke the order of service down for newer pastors minute by minute. So you saw exactly how they ran their service. And there was a block of, of two minutes set aside for prayer. And the entire service is God's people gather two minutes. And, and, and again, I don't mean to poke fun, but I think that's a, 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 a picture of, of how we view sometimes prayer, especially in a corporate gathering of God's people. And when we neglect prayer in the closet, and we neglect prayer in the corporate gathering... That says something, I think, about how we view prayer. What we think about the need and necessity of, of prayer. And so Paul exhorts Timothy and thus the church. And notice this is a letter uh, not just for Timothy. You, you caught what he said there towards the end. He said, I, I'm, a, I'm a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I am not lying. Now, Paul and Timothy had labored alongside one another. I don't think that was for Timothy as if Timothy didn't trust that Paul was an apostle, but this letter is to be passed out. It is not just a letter for the church at Ephesus in their little time period, but as he read, it is how we are to conduct ourselves in the church of the living God throughout history. And so he exhorts all types of prayers. And I don't know that we want to dogmatically define these completely distinctly, um, but when we think about prayer, prayer is a mystery. Isn't it? The, the sovereign God of the universe is at work in people's lives, whether drawing them to, in convicting them to be saved or sanctifying Christians, and He calls us to, to somehow engage in that work with Him through prayer. And we pray, and, and, and God acts. Things happen, right? God, God, God includes us in, in that work. But as much as we think about prayer as an external thing where we are hoping for God to work outside of us, I think just as much, maybe sometimes more, prayer is something that works here. Prayer does work in the soul, right, as we pray. So let's look at this, at this list briefly. He says we are to pray prayers of supplication. Prayers of supplication. That is, we pray that God would supply our needs. We pray that God would meet even the most basic necessities of life. Jesus says that we ought to pray for our daily bread. That we pray for, that God provides clothing and God provides food and God provides shelter. And so as we gather as a church, we ought to pray that God would meet our needs. That God would keep the lights on. That God would keep our health healthy. 
And what does that do for the soul when we pray in that fashion? Well, it instructs the soul that God is the provider. It instructs the soul that I am reliant upon the Lord for even my most basic of necessities. That all that I receive comes from the good hands of my good Father in heaven. We're to pray prayers of, of thanksgiving. Prayers of thanksgiving. Those are obvious, right? We're to pray with gratitude in our hearts. Paul would often add this to a prayer. Pray prayer of supplication with thanksgiving in your hearts. And so we pray to God with thankfulness. And the, the, the amazing reality for Christians is that whatever you've gone through, whatever life has dealt to you, however awful things have gotten at one time or are today, if you have Christ, you have everything. You have everything that you could ever ask for in Him. And so that's the, 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 the paradox of living as a Christian. We suffer and we have gratitude in our hearts because we have Christ. Because we have Christ. We pray prayers of intercession. And what is that? That is, that is, that is the, 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 the prayer, if you will, carrying some needy soul to the throne of grace. That is a man interceding on behalf of another man. Or as we gather the church, as we just did, as our brother led us, interceding on behalf of others, carrying a needy soul, a needy family, a needy church, a needy nation, needy people to the throne of grace. And, and what does that do for our souls? It, it teaches us humility, doesn't it? It teaches you and me as I pray for others and you pray for others that the world doesn't revolve around my life, that everything is not about me. It teaches love for our fellow man. When you exercise prayer for someone that is an enemy, someone that is hostile towards you, someone that frustrates you, it it, it has a way of, of, of helping us see that they're not that different than we are. Their sin looks different, and their struggles look different, but they share the same fallen, cursed condition that we share. We, we make it a point every week to pray for other churches and other ministries. And why is that? It's because we recognize that the kingdom of God is not exclusive to First Baptist Church here in Phoenix. We rejoice if God is pleased to bring revival down the street at another faithful church. We find joy in that. We pray to that end. We're to pray prayers, not listed here, but we pray prayers of adoration, adoring the, the person of God, not even specifically the, the works of God, but Him, who He is, His glory, His majesty, His beauty, His greatness. Prayers of confession, prayers of, of petition. I think the implication is clear that when God's people assemble, we ought to be a people of prayer. We ought to besiege God as a Body. We ought to seek together for this church to find and to know the mind of Christ. As Jesus said, my house is to be a house of prayer, a place of prayer. And that corporate prayer, when we gather, ought to then, of course, bleed out into the rest of our days, whether that's our family religion, family worship, and then our worship as individuals. And so it is a call here for all types of prayers Secondly, for all types of people. For all types of people. Again, verse 1. First of all then, I urge 
supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. He goes on to say, this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And as you know, as you, as you read the Bible and as you read the Gospels and you see Jesus dealing with the Pharisees, that there was a tendency in Judaism to be inward thinking, to be focused on themselves, their own nation, their own people. To, they had a, 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 an issue with pride, a superiority issue. It was the Jews and then it was the Gentiles, right? Everyone else. And they had a, a, a loving nickname. They called them dogs, right? So they, had a, they, had a, they were to be distinct and they were to be cut off, but, but it seems at times that, that that caused them to think inward. And when we think inward, that leads to a self-serving, self-centered prayer life, right? When it's all about us, whether it's my family, my church, my, my people, my nation, my city, my whatever, it also then leads to a self-centered ministry focus. When it's all about us and who we are, it's all about the Jews, then it leads to a focus on just themselves. And then we add to that, these are not uh, Jews specifically that he's writing to, but that tendency coming into the church. Add to that the reality that Christians are here already being persecuted. Remember we said that this book was written probably in the early 60s, Nero, Emperor Nero, comes into power in A.D. 54. And if you know anything about Nero, you know that he was sort of a, a wild man. Um, the church wasn't persecuted at this time across the entire empire, but it would be geographically in different locales at different times. And Nero had a desire to rebuild Rome. He wanted to beautify it and build up the city. And the powers that be were not all that uh, in agreement with him. And so, somehow, a fire broke out, right? And history says that it was probably Nero that was behind the fire. And much of the city burned down, and when the city burns, what do you do? You have to rebuild. So he had his chance to rebuild, but what did he do? He blamed it on the Christians. It seemed like when anything would happen in that day, it was those dang Christians that were somehow at fault. Um, Nero is the emperor that is known, at least at one point, to have put Christians on spikes and cover them in pitch and light them on fire and prance around his garden and use them as living torches. And so we could see why the church would be hesitant to pray for such a man, to pray for a government or authorities that treated them in this fashion. It truly was at times us versus, us versus them. And maybe... Maybe you too, at times, struggle uh, to pray for those that have harmed you. Maybe you struggle to pray for your enemies. Maybe you struggle to pray for those that oppose you, that frustrate you, that have, that have stabbed you in the back. Maybe you find it difficult to pray for our current president, our current vice president. Maybe you, find it, you found it difficult to pray for our previous president. But God here clearly says we are to pray for those in authority over us. And the implication, I believe, is this. We are to pray for all peoples, all types of peoples, because God desires all peoples, all types of people, 
to be saved. As Paul often says, salvation is not exclusive to the Jews or to these Gentiles. It's not exclusive to men and women. It's not exclusive to the poor or the rich, to the common man or to the ruling class. But the mystery of Christ is that all are included in God's plan of salvation, right? Jew and Gentile alike. But it's not just a, a, a cultural thing, but a class thing as well. That God desires that all types of people from every level of society would come to a knowledge of the truth. And thus salvation is not just for these Gentiles here in Ephesus, but salvation is even for pagan rulers who at this point stand opposed to the work of the gospel and to the kingdom of God. They too, they too can be saved. Maybe often, or at least myself, need to be reminded of that, of that reality. Maybe we have a tendency in our prayer focus or in our ministry focus to exclude certain people, certain types of people, certain groups of people. I'm not going to pray for X, Y, Z. They're evil. They're awful. They're wicked. He or she, this political person, this president, this vice president, I'm not going to pray for them. I can't, I can't stand that person or what they stand for. But Paul here calls the church to pray for all types of people, from all classes. As we mentioned, as I mentioned in the beginning, uh, this Saturday we'll be reaching out at the Medford Pride event. And, and, and I'll just acknowledge that I have what I hope is a, a righteous anger and even hatred for the LGBTQ movement, for what it stands for. I, I believe it's an affront to God's good design. It's, it, it boasts in that which uh, God calls an abomination. It, it celebrates thing that, things that damn souls to hell, literally. And I believe it is devastating our young people. This generation is being devastated by this ideology. But those in the movement are image bearers, made in the image of God. They are very often broken people that are trying to find themselves, that have latched on to this identity, and, and the bonus is that they can act out in all of their sexual perversion, and they'll be celebrated for it. And, and I'll just be, be, be candid, that the flesh wants to exclude that sort of people from a ministry focus. It is not the desire of, 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 of our hearts necessarily to go and spend time with a crowd that will say and celebrate the things that they will say and celebrate. But the reality is this, beloved. For, for many of you here, someone was bold to come to you when you didn't want anything to do with Jesus. Someone was willing to come to you. They didn't wait for you to ask them, can you explain to me the gospel? I want to be saved. Praise God if that happened to you. It rarely happens, right? People don't come and ask us that question. Someone was bold to come to you and say, Friend, I know that you don't care about God, but you need God. Your soul is perishing, and if you stay on this path, you will be damned forever. Someone was bold to drag you to church all those years when you wanted to stay home and sit back and sleep in or watch football or whatever it was. Someone was faithful to you. And so we are called here by the Apostle to pray for all people and I believe then to minister 
to all people, from all classes, all levels of society. And notice what Paul grounds that in. Verse, two, or verse 5, Pray for all people, all types of people, all types of prayers, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And so Paul reminds us, if we need reminding, that there's only one God. There is one creator, one sovereign, one, one that holds the universe today by the word of his power, one that sustains every beating heart in this room and across the globe today. There is one whom has given us a law that we owe obedience to. There is one true king above every other king. And men may worship a whole host of gods, right? Little G gods. Every culture, every region, every nationality has varieties of gods that they worship. I've known folks that have gone to India to minister and there's sacrifices taking place on the streets, chickens being offered in little altars all along the side of the road. Everyone has their God. But Paul reminds us that the God of the Bible is the only God above all of humanity. All types of people, every location across the globe, every path does not make it to God. Because he goes on and he says also there's one mediator. Listen to what he says in Romans chapter 10. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, verse 12, for the same Lord is Lord of all. The same Lord is Lord of all. Yahweh says in Isaiah 44, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. There is no God apart from the triune God of Scripture. But he goes on to say there is one mediator between God and men. That is, friend, that there is only one means of salvation. There is one way to be right with God. One path, one shepherd, one savior. And it is he that gave himself as a ransom for all. That is the totality of humanity, whether in antiquity, today, or in the future, whether royalty or pleasant, uh, pre, uh, excuse me, peasant class, have one name to call upon. One Savior. One Lord to look to, and one mediator to bring them to God. Because as we read in the book of Acts, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. A couple of few weeks back, I uh, told you the story about our encounter at Southern Oregon University and doing ministry out there. And one young man was walking by and I said something about the gospel. And he said, I'm a Buddhist. And I said, Jesus said that he's the only way. And he said, oh no, they're the same person. They're the same person. Right? And there's this idea out there that, that we're all just groping for a God. And we've, we've, we've figured out God in our own way, in our own culture. And as long as we're sincere, and as long as we're really seeking for God in some sense, seeking spirituality, that all of these different saviors, all of these different deities that men have come up with, they all lead to the same source. But the word says here that there's one mediator between God and men. That means there's only one access there's only one way that you could be granted access to the Father, and that is through His Son. 
That is through His Son. And so God, excuse me, let me back up here. And so Timothy is exhorted to pray all types of prayers for all types of people. Those that he loves, those that he gets along with, those that he ministers with, those that are friendly to him, and those that do him harm, those that stand opposed to everything that he is about. Because all have sinned. All have broken the law of God. All are fallen. All are cursed. And all need a Savior. And Christ Jesus is the only way for any man in this world. And the reality, friend, is that that remains true to this day. Nothing's changed from that time until today. If you would be forgiven of your sin, if you would be right with God, if you would actually know God and be a Christian, then it's only through faith in Christ. It is only through repenting of your sin and believing in the one and only Savior. And the Bible says that if you've done that, if you've believed, then you will bear fruit. Right? Your life will be transformed. It will be changed. You'll be given a new heart, new desires, new affections. And so we pray for all types of people, all types of prayers. And what is the, what is the reason behind that? Verse 2 again, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. A peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Now, now remember, this is prayer in the context of the corporate gathering of the church primarily. And so we're to pray for those that rule over us. And he says the aim then is a peaceful, quiet life, godly and dignified. So what is he saying here? I, think, I, I honestly think we can... We can, we can misunderstand this verse if we let it stand on its own. So is he saying that our goal for praying for the authorities is so that we can have a quiet existence where we bother no one and no one bothers us. I have my personal faith. I do my quiet time every day and, and I just live a sort of privatized Christianity away from the world. I suffer no hardship and life is just easy and I sort of live on my recliner and I got my access to heaven, and one day I'm going there. Is that the picture that the Bible paints? I don't think it can be, because just last week, Timothy was exhorted to wage the good warfare. He was called a soldier in Jesus Christ. The, the next letter of Paul to Timothy, uh, he will tell Timothy that all that desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Right, will suffer if you, if you live an active, external faith, faithful to the gospel, faithful to the word, it will cost you in some regard. So I don't think that's what he's driving at, that he's calling us to live a life with our feet up. That's the, that's the hope. But what he's driving at, I believe, is that we're to pray that we live a peaceful, quiet existence so that there be a stable environment for gospel ministry. A stable environment for gospel ministry because he goes on and he says this is good if we pray for this and if we and if we live peaceful and quiet this is good because God our Savior desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth this message of Jesus Christ 
and Him crucified is, is reaching people from every element of society. Right? No class is excluded. And when the church has relative peace with civil authorities, then ministry and mission can continue unhindered. Now I know that oftentimes persecution is a spark that grows the church. And I know also that when the church has so much peace and so much ease like we've had in this country, it often becomes watered down because people are in the church that have no business being there because it costs them nothing to name the name of Christ. I understand these things, but at the same time, when the church has a measure of peace with the civil authorities, when we can live and minister unhindered, it's a platform, right, for the gospel to be proclaimed, to be heralded. I think we ought to pray and rejoice in the fact that that still to this day we can stand on the corner, open up a Bible, and, and preach of the goodness of God in Christ, and for the most part, be unhindered. Now, that may be changing in our country, but we ought to pray, as Paul says here, that that would continue. That we could continue to meet publicly like this with no fear of someone kicking in the door, coming in from the government and, and regulating what we're doing. And so Paul goes on as he reminds of the ministry. This is the context. He says, For this reason, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So that is the, the, the context there, the, the, the fulfillment of the Great Commission. And so we're to pray for all people, including those in government. And I think by application we might say here, including those that are enemies to us, that are hostile to us, that, that stand opposed to Christ and His kingdom, that are not um, friendly toward us. Because God desires to save all types of people from all levels of society. And we ought to pray for them as well so that we can live a peaceful and godly life as a body of believers. And so the ministry can continue. And so I want to give two encouragements, two things that I want to just point out from this passage. Two points of application, if you will. Um, the first one I think is clearly here, and it's a blessing to just reflect on that the God of glory is sovereign over kings. The God of the Bible is sovereign over kings. And I, and I really think this, this, this is encouraging news for us because we live practically in a world where there's authority levels. And in our country, it's not all that bad. right? We, we live in freedom. In other countries, it is far worse. Um, but the author of the Proverbs says that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever He wills. He turns it wherever He wills. So God is sovereign over kings and over authorities. And as we see here, He can be called upon by Christians in prayer to act in such a way so that we can live in peace. He has that sort of authority over the, the governing authorities. And He can move in such a way that the church can function in worship and in the fulfilling of the Great Commission in such a way that is profitable. His reach, the hand of God, is not thwarted by evil regimes or immoral dictators or ungodly presidents or governors or any that would seek to stand opposed to Him. His power is not stayed when the government 
says there is no God and outright denies the existence of our Lord, denies his law, denies his commands. When Pilate handed over Jesus to be crucified, the plan of God was not thwarted, right? It was actually fulfilled. When Nebuchadnezzar has the Jews in Babylon and he commands them to bow down to this giant statue of himself, God's plan was not thwarted because Nebuchadnezzar himself, eventually after the, the, the spanking, I guess, if you will, that God gave him, praised the Most High God from a, a pagan ruler who was calling men to worship him, eventually praised God with his mouth. And so we're called to pray for governing authorities because God rules over them. And he desires the good of his church and the furtherance of his kingdom. Secondly, just on this broad topic of prayer, whether corporate or individual, prayer is a privilege bought by the blood of our Lord and a means of grace. Prayer is a privilege bought by the blood of our Lord and a means of, of grace. So we gather corporately as a body on the Lord's Day, and as the Word is preached, as the Word is read, God condescends by the Spirit and He speaks, right? And He communes to His people. And we sit here and we listen to a man read the Word or we, we read the Word ourselves, and God works in His Spirit in a mysterious way that we cannot see with our eyes and the living God speaks and communes with His people. And we may not hear an audible voice from heaven, but we hear the very words of God. He comes near, and, and His Word preached and, and read is a means by which He builds up our faith. And then our prayers, our petitions, our thanksgivings, our supplication, our confession, as a body gathered together is, is the people of God reaching out to heaven, rending the roof of this building and seeking to, to rend open heaven itself as we groan and grope to, to speak to and commune with our Father, in heaven, it is the bride of Christ calling upon her bridegroom. And as Grinnell said, uh, we are basically appealing to God's promises back to Him, calling upon His Word that He's given us. And we have this privilege every week, beloved, and every day as you live your life, because the God-man, the one mediator between God and men, gave His life. It is through the sufferings and death of our Lord that we have the wonderful privilege to pray. As we come together with one mind, Lord willing, one heart, one voice, we know that God hears. And we also know that when we ask in His name, we have the things for which we ask. And that ought to be food strengthening our souls, right? Just that reality, if we reflect on that, that we can speak and, and God hears. And not only does He hear, but He cares about what we say. And so with all of that, let us then be a people of prayer. Let us not neglect this practice as a church. Let us not neglect this practice in our homes, in our family, religion, family worship, in our prayer closets. So let us then, beloved, pray fervently. Fervently. The fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. 
Let us pray with unction and expectantly. Let us read the promises of God and then appeal those promises back to the Lord, believing that He is faithful to do that which He says. And let us pray in faith, believing without a shadow of a doubt. I know we're, we're fallen. Believing without a shadow of a doubt that, that God hears and that God answers. And that prayer is powerful. I'm reading, a, 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 I think, an autobiography right now of a, of a Baptist minister back in the 1600s named Hansard Knowles. And he tells this story. I want to share it with you very briefly. He tells the story of a, of a lady who is dying, and she's on her deathbed. And Now, this is the 1600s, but she's, the doctors have done all they can, and the family is gathered around her, and she tells this pastor, please, I want you to stay with me and don't leave until I, I pass away. And so he comes into her home, he brings some books, his Bible, and he's studying for her sermon, for her funeral. He's preparing to preach her, her eulogy. And so she's in the room, and she's been in there for four days. She hasn't eaten, she hasn't spoken, she hasn't moved, and everyone's just waiting for that, 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 that hour to strike. And he, and he senses the, the, the temptation of Satan, he says, challenging him that you don't actually believe in prayer, and you don't actually believe God's word, because you know that if you prayed, she's still going to die. And so his flesh is wrestling with this. And so he rebukes Satan, and he begins to pray. And he goes into her room, and he locks the door behind him, and he gets on his knees, and he appeals earnestly to God, and he pleads, and he pleads, and she begins to move and become active. And then he's tempted again, and the enemy is saying, She's dying, you fool. She's not coming to life. These are the throes of death. She'll be gone soon. Your prayer doesn't mean anything. And so he prays and he pleads and she sits up and she says, I am well. God has heard your prayers. And she calls the family and she takes food and she gets up and walks on a, on a cane and she's, and she's revived. And he says, I did nothing, but I prayed believing that God would act and God showed up in that moment, because a man prayed fervently in prayer, believing that God would act, and God showed himself faithful. And beloved, let us lastly pray as one. When we pray together, I know it's distracting at times, it's difficult sometimes when someone else is praying to really be focused, but when we pray as a body, may God in heaven hear one voice. May He hear one heart, one united front. And may we share in that one common goal and common aim to seek and to know the mind of Christ for this body. And so we're called to pray all types of prayers for all types of people because God is pleased and does save even those that we think He would never save or that we might not even in the depths of our heart want Him to save. But God is faithful. Let us pray. Father, we do thank You. We do thank you that you've given us the gift of prayer. That our, uh, our relationship with you is not something that is broken and distant. It is not something that is severed from actual communion. But you speak to your church through your word. And, and you give us the, the joy and privilege of speaking back to you. So Lord, help us as a body see the great necessity of prayer, that we can't seek to minister, to do anything, to see any fruit, uh, unless we, we, we know that you're in it, and unless we've appealed to you. And so we do that now, God, 
Uh, I thank you for my brother as he led us in prayer. And I just echo those prayers, God. Have your way in our lives. Bless the rest of this day as we seek to find a holy rest in Christ. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.